I shared with you a little bit earlier why I'm interested personally in talking about motivation for foreign missions and a little bit why I'm concerned about it for the sake of our ministry. But that's really not why I'm here. I'm here because I'm concerned about it, about this topic for you, for the Church of Jesus Christ and for Providence in particular. You know, when you when you become a member of a Presbyterian church, you become a member of our Global Mission Society. And so, whether you're participating in it, in this work personally or more remotely, each of us has a stake in it. So, motivation is important. Why we do it. Motivation for global missions. So, that's the topic today. Um, Let me read our text. Uh, It's printed in your bulletin also from Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4a, first part of 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Let's pray one more time. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence here with us. And we pray that you would forgive us our sins because we want to see, we want to see clearly. We want to see words of grace, words of hope. We want to experience your presence by your spirit. So please be with us in Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm going to start by talking a little bit about motivation. What do I mean when I say motivation? And how is that the theme of this text that we just read? So that's how we'll start. And then I'll go into a little bit of context because we're jumping right into the middle of Genesis. So all of you, probably most of you, are familiar with the stories of Genesis. So I'll, but I'll just set a little bit of context for our text, diving into Genesis chapter 12. And then we'll notice that there's a problem. Um, This text confronts us in a particular way. And so talk a little bit about how that confrontation may be happening as we we talk about this, how it might be affecting your minds and hearts. Uh, We'll go a little bit more in depth in the text, uh, some some comments about the, the details of the text, and then close with some application. How does, how do, what does this all have to do with uh, motivation for global missions in particular? So that's how we're going to chart the way forward. Uh, talk about what is motivation, how is it the theme, talk about the, the, the context of where we are in Genesis, and then the problem that we encounter, um, and then look at the text a bit more closely and some application. So that's where we're headed. Belief and action go together. That shouldn't be difficult to kind of consider for us, right? The, the, the greater the action that is required, the deeper the belief must be. Um, Barb went back to school not too, well, I guess it's been a while now, hasn't it? Um, the kids were, were growing up, and you know she was freer, and she was thinking about a new career, and so she signed up for uh, to go back to school in a graduate program. And I remember uh, a number of times as she was as we were thinking through this together, saying, "Babe, I believe in you." And what did I mean when I said that? It, it wasn't just that I meant that that you know she was she was going to be a great teacher. It didn't just mean that, you know, she, she had the wherewithal to accomplish this, this task. What, I think the, most, the, the deepest thing that I meant when I said that was, I am all in with this, in this with you. It's going to be costly. 
It's going to be hard, but count me in. I'm all in. So action, when, it, when, a, when a great action is required, a deeper belief is also necessary to, uh, to accomplish that action. Of course, a great example of that is, what does it take to, to take a nation to war? Well, it's, it's one thing to go to war for a short period of time, but what about when that extends and it, and it, and it turns into billions of dollars uh, like we encountered in Afghanistan? What, is, what does it take to, to stick with it? What does it take when the body bags start coming back? It takes a deeper motivation. It takes incredibly deep motivation. In... Uh, in murder mysteries, if you're a fan of murder mysteries, you know that um, a big part of solving a murder mystery is motivation, right? Because it's, it's assumed that nobody just goes out and, and murders somebody. Uh, it, there has to be, there has to be a, a, something deep within a person that motivates, something in, in their psychology that motivates them to do such a, a, a a dastardly deed. So in a negative sense, you can say that uh, the more appalling the action, the deeper the motivation that is required. Motivation and action go together. And so this, the, the, this sermon is, is not really on the goal of missions. It's, it's not even really on the methodology of, of how do we go about doing missions. Those are important topics. I want to focus our attention on the motivation for missions. What, what is it going to take for the church to be engaged from generation to generation in crossing barriers that are around the world for the sake of the gospel? What is it going to take for that cost year after year? What is it going to take when the body bags start coming back, whether that's literal or metaphorical, what is it going to take us to do this? If you, if you can think in terms of, this doesn't really work that well, but if you think in terms of the task of global missions, like going on a family holiday, okay? So um, you, you choose the goal. You're going to Disney World, right? You have a map to get yourself to Disney World, but you got to have the gas. you got to have the spark that's going to ignite the gas in your combustion engine and actually get you to Disney World. So that's what I'm trying to focus on. What is that spark? And in our, in our confessions, this motivation is connected to faith. Um, whether it's the Westminster Confession, proceeds from the heart by a purified faith, purified by faith, or whether it's Heidelberg, arising out of true faith, motivation has to do with faith. And um, if, you know, the Apostle Paul says, if it's not of faith, it's sin. So motivation is important, not only because we want to get to our holiday destination, but because without the proper motivation, we are not pleasing the Lord. These words, belief, faith, and motivation, they're, they're difficult words to kind of make concrete. Well, the Lord makes them concrete in the scriptures, in the story of Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith. And this text, then, is about motivation. It's about the heart purified by faith. In fact, you could argue that it is the text in Scripture about motivation in an historic sense. The call of Abraham here, um, you might think, you know, since it's a missionary speaking, it's going to be, you know, a, the, 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 the process is going to be talking about how, you know, Abraham left his family and he moved to a new place that God was going to show him and coordinate that with the missionary call. Well, that's, I think those connections are kind of incidental. So I'm not going to go in that direction. Um, what we see in, in this text is kind of three elements. This is the basic structure of the text. Uh, God's command, God's promise, 
and Abraham's obedience. Right? God commands to go. There's a promise that God gives, verses 2 and 3. And then beginning of verse 4, we see Abraham obeying. That's kind of the basic structure of the text. Now, if, if it were just God commands and Abraham obeys, then we could say that this text is really about obedience. But you notice that the focus of this text is not on the command so much as it is on the promise. And because the focus of the text is on the promise, we can say that this text is really about faith. So, God commands, man obeys. God promises, man exercises faith. That's the human response to the promise, is the exercise of faith. So this, we could say, is perhaps the theme of our text, the obedience of faith. Not just obedience, but the obedience of faith, which is motivation in its most classical sense. In fact, we could say that this text is, is the most important act of obedience in history up to this point. And you might say, well, wait a second. Um, what about Noah? Okay. I'll, I'll take that. Noah, Noah's act of faith was very significant. In, there are two parts of human history. Uh, Noah represents obedience in history 1.0, and Abraham represents obedience in history 2.0. So now we have to get into thinking about the context of of. Of this, of this text, where it stands in Scripture. Where it stands here in Genesis chapter 12, we notice that there is a change-up. There has been a pattern up to this point, and now there's a change in pattern. Interesting. That must be significant. Secondly, we notice that uh, immediately prior to this text, we have the story of, of Babel. Huh, that's weird. Interesting. So how, do these, how does this change up in pattern and the, 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 the preface to this account of, of Abraham's call of Babel, what is the connection there? So let's think about that for a couple of moments. Uh, first of all, the, the pattern. Up to this point, God's blessing has been for humanity as a whole, right? He blessed Adam and Eve in the garden. And then after the fall, Genesis 5, he, he blesses them again. And then he blesses Noah and his sons, Genesis chapter 9. He's blessed, his, God's blessing is for humanity as a whole. Huh, here, God's calling out one particular man and choosing to bless him. And, and, and Why? So it kind of makes sense why he would bless Adam, Adam and Eve, right? Because they're the parents of all humanity. That makes sense. And it kind of makes sense for the same reason uh, that he would bless Noah. Not only that, but Noah was a righteous man. That kind of makes sense. Uh, what about Abraham? Why did God bless Abraham? Don't know. <laughs> Doesn't say. No reason. So we see that uh, in, in this change in pattern, God is choosing to act in a particular way with a particular family rather than universally. And God is choosing to act sovereignly based on his, his own will, his own choice. Now let's come to uh, the story of Babel. And we see a couple of significant connections between the text that we just read and the story of Babel. First of all, God promises to make of Abram a great nation. Let me pause for a second. I, I can't stick with Abram. I, I'm sorry, I just, Abraham flows out of my mouth. So 
just when you hear Abraham, just it's a little bit anachronistic, but it's the same dude, right? So God chooses to, he promises to make Abram into a great nation. Well, what has just happened? And what has just happened is we have uh, the table of nations. So God draws our attention to all the nations of the world. And then he draws our attention to this, this uh, work of the Babylites that they're going to make themselves great. They're going to establish a single nation uh, for themselves. And to, in contrast to that, God says, I'm, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. Secondly, we find the words there in, in verse 2, I'm going to make your name great. Well, what has just happened with the Babylites? They had just declared in chapter 11, verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves. So you see, God is countering what the Babylites are doing with his own work based on his own sovereignty, his own purposes. And then thirdly, what was, the, what was the whole Babel thing about? It was about a construction project. They want to build something. They want to build up to God. And what does God promise in this text? He also wants to build something. What is he building? It's not a tower of, of mortar and, and, uh, and brick. What he is building is a family, an organic construction project. So we see here that God, just kind of in conclusion, what we come to with, within our context is, this is, God is doing something in a particular way with a particular man, and he is doing it sovereignly by his own choice, by his own will, for his own purposes. That will be significant as we come to uh, the text itself. But these conclusions, they, they might rub you a little bit the wrong way. So I just want to acknowledge that, um, first of all, is there might be a cultural problem. Now, some, of, some Americans think that privilege is bad. Any kind of privilege is bad. So the idea of God giving Abraham a privilege is just kind of... Other Americans feel like, well, well, any unearned privilege is bad. And so when we come, come to the here and we see that God just chose to bless Abraham for, for nothing, that he didn't sit right either. So a, a maybe cultural problem. Um, some of you might sense here a bit of a theological problem because universal, God dealing with all of humanity, and now he's dealing with one person, and yet somehow God has a purpose for all of humanity. How does this work together? Um, and there, there, there's a third problem, a third problem that some of you might be feeling in terms of historical development, because this, is kind, of, this kind of feels like taking a step backwards. Like God, is, God has a, a purpose for, for all, of, all of humanity, and yet now he's isolating one individual and uh, he's, he's not sending him to New York City. He's sending to some town way outside of York, Pennsylvania. And it just doesn't make sense. How is this developing historically in the story? And that's a problem for this sermon, too, because I, I want to get to talking about global missions, the, the, the universal responsibility of, of the church, and how, do I, how am I going to get there from here? So I'm not going to address all these questions in our short time together, but just wanted to acknowledge that that could be something you're feeling at this point. We have to recognize that at this juncture in history, something dramatic has changed. Um, you, You could think of it this way. Uh, to, just to dramatize it a little bit. Uh, before this point in history, uh, if you showed up at the pearly gates and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? 
you might say, well, you know, everybody's got a chance, right? We, we all got a shot at this thing. Uh, after this point in history, you show up at the pearly gates and there's a notice. And that notice says, admission restricted. Either you are Abraham or you're a friend of Abraham. Something has changed here. just want you to feel that a little bit. So what we've established so far, our theme, obedience of faith, motivation, a bit of, a bit of plot development from universal to particular, and God exercising his sovereignty. So are we still, we still together on this so far? Okay, let's look at the text itself in a little more detail. Uh, turn to uh, verses 2 and 3. Let's just look at this a little bit more closely. Now, some English translations have this kind of helpfully laid out in, in clauses, and some just have it running together. Um, but count the clauses for me. See how many clauses you see in verses 2 and 3. So, for example, the first clause is, and I will make you a great nation. Now, how many are there in verses 2 and 3? How many do you find? Okay, let's go through them. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so, shall, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Seven. This is another, another significant structure in our text. How, do, how, does, this, how does this structure inform how we understand the meaning of this text. Well, um, it's kind of balanced, right? There's, there's three clauses in uh, the heading, and then there, there's a, uh, there are three clauses in the conclusion or in the climax. And then there's this middle clause, which is kind of a, a hinge clause, okay? So the heading... Clause is, is uh, about God's blessing in particular to Abram. And the conclusion, the climax, is about how that relates to all of humanity. And then there's that hinge part in between. So the, the, the climax actually helps us to understand the introductory clauses. Great name, great nation, what is that all about? Well, it helps us to understand that this great name and great nation have to do with how Abram is to be known throughout the world. The greatness here is his, his universal fame. God is drawing near to Abram, and God's nearness to Abram is going to be recognized by the whole world. Now, of course, you know, all of you, good Bible students, you know that there's, there are particular aspects to this greatness that will come out later in the story, like uh, the great numbers of Abram's descendants, right? And the, the land that God is going to bless with Abram. But that's later. Let's just think about this, where we are at now in history, and we'll realize that it's really, this, this is really the grounds for all of that greatness that will be demonstrated by God's promises and his work later on. And that grounds is God's closeness to Abram. And let's look at the, the last few clauses um, also, what I call the climax. Um, and you notice that as God promises this universal 
promise of, of all the nations of the world, he does not diminish his particular promise to Abram. Because how are all the nations of the world going to be blessed? Well, they're going to be blessed by recognizing God's particular promise to Abram. So there's no conflict here. In fact, the universal magnifies the particular. And some of you know, our immediate thought in terms of how the particular relates to the universal, it could be, uh, you could automatically kind of think of the capitalist principle, like kind of, you know, Abram has won the lottery of God's blessing. And so this, this, uh, this blessing of God is then going to filter out through Abraham to others. But you notice that the text explicitly speaks against that because it is not just blessing to Abram that's going to randomly flow to others. Kind of like, you know, when you, when you write a check to a charity, you, think, you, you say, well, you know, God blessed me, so I'm able to bless you. That's not, that's not how this text comes out because it says, I will bless those who bless you. It is God personally and sovereignly blessing those who bless Abraham. And it's also kind of climactic because in these verses, these last three clauses, all of humanity and all of history come into view. So you realize that in God's speaking to Abram, really he is addressing the whole of human history in these words. Some will bless, some will dishonor. And in this way, humanity will be divided from this point forward. You know, in humanity was divided in Genesis 3.15, right? When the seed of the serpent was set over against the seed of the woman. Well, here we see that being explicitly demonstrated, that from this point on, there is going to be national warfare. There is going to be war between those who oppose and those who befriend. There are only two alliances in this world from this point forward. And of course, we know that this doesn't have anything to do with modern social issues of anti-Semitism. This has to do with God's purposes for his church. So Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are only two alliances from this point forward and Eve has become Sarah. And each of us are a part of this alliance also. And the invitation is open to us every week as we gather to to come and participate in, in this alliance of blessing that flows from being a friend to Abraham. And lastly, of course, it's climactic because really this is not about any tangible thing that Abraham is going to touch in his life. Remember, he's being sent not to New York City to propagate, you know, um, uh, a religion throughout the world. He is being sent to a remote place where God is going to bless him in his own time and in his own way. And in response, when Abraham obeys, he understands that. So the, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says that Abram, in his obedience, he was looking to the builder. He was looking to God himself. God is, is inviting Abraham here to, to view the promiser, to look into the face of the promiser. He's inviting him into fellowship with himself because he says, Abram, really, I am the promise. I am the gift. As he will later say, Abram, I am your shield. I am your reward. So Abram is being called to, to intimacy with God and fellowship with God. And this is, we can see by 
the, the, the nature of the promise that be, is being made, that this is something that Abram is looking to uh, in a completely new way than anything else he has looked in his life. That this promise, this, this, uh, this favor of God is something that's completely different from anything that has been granted to mankind since the fall. It is the gift of God himself. And this is key. This is key for our topic here, that when Abram looks at God, when he looks at the promiser, Abram doesn't see himself alone. He sees himself as the head of of a mighty river of blessing. We'll get to that in a moment. But how does this then give us insight into the, the hinge clause. I don't want to leave that one out because it's, it's obviously so central to this text. So that you shall be a blessing, it says in the New American Standard Bible. And if you compare the different English versions of this text, you'll realize that translators are really struggling to figure out how to translate it because there are so many different ways that it's translated. And, but I think that the upshot is pretty clear. Um, that Abram is being in this promise. He's being so closely identified with God that whenever anybody comes into contact with Abram, they come into contact with God. And that has either positive or negative effect. Rather than God's favor being expiring from the world at this stage in history, God is focusing his favor on one man, one individual. It has become concrete in adoption. The fatherhood of God is not just a function of creation anymore. It's a function of his personal adoption. Abraham now possesses the covenant promises of God, and nobody else does. Abraham now possesses God, and nobody else does. That's hard. We as egalitarian Americans, we don't like the sound of that. And there are, there are commentators who come to our aid and, and help us by re-explaining this text in a way that undermines its meaning altogether. But it's comforting to us. They say, you know, no, God, God really didn't want to spoil Abraham. So w- what this text is really about is God is giving Abram a responsibility. That's what the text is really about. Uh, perhaps you've even heard, um, uh, uh, blessed to be a blessing. That's a common phrase that we hear all the time. But that, te- that, that the phrase doesn't find its home in this text. Abram is not just blessed to be a blessing. He is blessed because of God's love for Abraham. Uh, let me just demonstrate this, this interpretation in, a, in a, uh, a little bit of uh, an example. So parents go to an orphanage, they adopt a child, they bring the child home, and the child years later says to his parents, you know, there are a lot of kids in that orphanage. Why me? And the parents said to the child, uh, yeah, let me just explain that. Um, we really wanted to help all of the kids in the orphanage, but we we're kind of limited in our capacity. So, you know, we, we, we chose you and we thought, you know, we're going, to, we're going to give you certain benefits so that you can then share all that with everybody else in the orphanage. Now, that's a valid rationale, but would you call them adoptive parents? Oh, they're philanthropists. They want to help out, and that's noble. But that's not what's happening in this text. God is adopting Abraham. And he's saying to him, you are my son, now look at me. Look at me as the promiser. Look at me as the source of your life. 
Come into my presence. That's what I want of you, Abraham. And Abraham obeys. Now, my point in this is not to, you know, highlight some interpreter that I disagree with. My point is that that, that completely affects how, completely affects motivation, this topic that is of our central concern here. Because it sounds noble that Abraham is being uh, drawn out in order to be a blessing to other people. And that's, that's God's purpose here. It sounds noble. It sounds good. It sounds egalitarian. We want to believe that, but no. God is giving Abram a deeper motivation. What is that motivation that God is giving to Abram? Remember, the gift, the reward, the promise is God himself. So when Abram looks at God, he sees the promiser, but he doesn't see himself alone. He sees flowing, a flowing river of God's blessing that's going to spread across the whole world. And when he follows that river of blessing upstream, he doesn't see his own body there. He sees Christ. He sees that it is this connection to Christ, the one he represents that is going to be the source of all of God's blessing for the world. The promise is in the future tense. But once that promise is spoken, it becomes Abram's possession. It belongs to him. And you all know that that the, the greatest motivation happens when you, when you possess something, but, but, but there's still something more to possess. The same tr- is true of Abram. He possesses the promise of God, but, but there's still more. There is the fulfillment of that promise. So you all know, many of you know what it's like to be around an engaged couple. Or maybe some of you have been engaged sometime in, your, in the past. Uh, it's difficult to find a moment in your, in your life, maybe in your marriage in particular, where you have been more motivated than in that period of engagement. Because you possess the promise, but, but you're waiting for its fullness, for the wedding day. And that's the condition that God leaves Abram. And it's the condition that we find ourselves in too. We possess Christ. We possess God in all of his fullness. But, but, but there's more. And remember, when God looks, when Abram looks in the face of the promising God, he doesn't see himself alone. He sees himself as a part of this mighty river of God's blessing. And so too for ourselves. When we look to God and we know that he belongs to us, when we sing to Jesus, I am yours and you are mine, we aren't doing that alone. We're doing that together with the bride, with the whole bride of Christ gathered and perfected to be brought into intimacy and fellowship with God himself. When we trace this river of blessing back to its source in Christ, we see that Abram is pointing us to his own greater son, the promised one, the Christ. The son who would be lifted up in greatness. The son who would be drawing all men to himself. The son with the exalted name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow the son with the ultimate construction project, the permanent construction project of the church, his own body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the son who would claim the fulfillment of the promise of Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. 
and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so when Paul reflects on this text, he says that the scriptures preach the gospel ahead of time in declaring to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel of Abraham, the gospel of the gospel that motivates. In possession of this promise, we too are motivated by the more, by the more that is yet to possess. So what will it take? What will it take for, uh, for the, the, the work of global missions to continue and to be advanced and to grow? You know, it's relatively easy to, to write a check. It's, it's, it's relatively easy to miss Starbucks once a week to accomplish some purpose of, of denying yourself for the sake of others. Um, whether it's philanthropy or um, altruism. But what does it take to continue on when the body bags start coming back? What does it take for some of you to say goodbye to your grandchildren for a long period of time? What does it take for those of you who are are young and have careers ahead of you and to deny all of that for the sake of taking the gospel across a barrier in the world? And what is it going to take to sustain that until you're too old to do anything else? These are the questions that haunt us. The answer, my friends, is week after week coming into the presence of God, being invited by him face to face to see the promising God. Okay, so I have a little story here that might, because it's silly, maybe it'll, you'll remember it and make this connection. Uh, Our second daughter, when, when she was about to be born, we had a phone call with Barb's parents and uh, you know, they ask, you know, what's the name? And we explained the name. And, and uh, Luis's middle name in Arabic is, is an Arabic name that means faith. So when we explain that to them, what they heard was face. And they said, oh, that's nice. You know, they're probably thinking, these weird people, they, they do all kinds of weird things, including naming their daughter Face. Silly story. The, my point in telling this story is that this is really the answer to our need for motivation for global missions is to meet Christ every week, face to face. Faith is formed when we are brought face to face with God. Faith is nurtured when we are weakly brought face to face with God. Faith is fulfilled when we will finally be brought face-to-face with God, not through a mirror darkly, but face-to-face. Facing the world does not produce that kind of motivation. You may think that in order to motivate us to, to... reach the world would be to face the world, see its problem, look at its problems, look at the inequality, look at the, the, the balance of where the church is and where it isn't. All that may be true, but that is not going to produce the, the right motivation. It is when we are brought face to face with the promiser and we realize that this promise that God makes is for his whole church, the body of Christ. I will be your God and you will be my nation, he says. Now I realize that often in missions, this is true with our own story, 
you begin with altruism. You think, okay, you know, I have, I can do this one thing and can, how God will use that one thing and there is such a need for this one thing in a different place or, uh, you know, that, that may be how God begins to make us think about global missions. But he grows us, just as he grows us in every other way as Christians. He grows us in our motivation to understand that God is addressing us not as Providence Church alone. You know, when we meet together for, at the Lord's table, the most intimate, intimate moment of our Christian life, of gathering at the Lord's, at the Lord's table, of feeding on Christ. We do that together, right? We do that as a body. We don't do that just alone. We do that with the whole of Christ's church. All over the world, we come and enter his presence and feed and drink in this most intimate of fellowships. When God looks at his church, he doesn't just see a vehicle of blessing. He sees a bride, the bride of Christ. And mission exists because this is the wedding day. I hear there's a wedding going on right now, maybe right now. Um, you know, a lot of work goes into a wedding, right? There's a lot of details that have to be prepared months in advance sometimes unless you have a barefoot wedding. Um, But all of that comes together on the day. All of the details fall into place on the day. My friends, this is the day. This is the day when all of those details are falling together in the final moments of God's purposes for the bride to be gathered and perfected, to be gathered even from the most distant places, even from across the most dramatic barriers to the gospel. This is the day. Maybe it would be helpful to contrast you know, the proverbial first date to preparation for a wedding. You know, the pr- proverbial first date is you're really you're really concerned about yourself. You're really focused on yourself. Am I, going to, am I wearing the right clothes? Am I going to say the right things? And are we going to the right place? It's self-preoccupation, right? Because you're unsure if this person is going to like you or not like you, and you really want them to like you. What happens on the wedding day? There's also a self-preoccupation but it's a completely different kind. Everything has to be in place. The hair has to be right. The, the dress, of course, has to be right. The, the, the flowers have to be right. I hear that even the shoes have to be right. Everything has to be right, but what, what is the focus? It's not, it's not is he going to like me? The focus is, this guy is going to give himself to me and I'm going to give myself to him and everything has to be just right for that moment and so too for us on our wedding day of the the bride of Christ everything we are totally in it everything has to be just right all have to be gathered all have to be perfected in order for the bride to be presented to the groom. He is giving himself. We are giving ourselves. This is our motivation. Of course, on the wedding day, things are very practical, right? It's not just airy-fairy feelings. It's like the practical details. You have to get to the church on time. The ring has to be there. All of these details, so too in this work of global missions. There are a lot of details. They all fit together. It is incredibly practical. And I'm not going to go into a lot of practical applications. I'm just going to mention one, just 
something that you can take home. You know, I have my week divided up in terms of how I pray. And um, there's one day of the week that I'm particularly motivated in my prayer. Do you know what the topic is? It's my kids. <laughs> it's my family. And I, for, for those that are, are married, I pray that God would give them children. For those who are not married, I pray that God would bless them and grow them and, and, and that he would find spouses for them. I, I pray that they will be, my family will be expanded and they will be perfected. I'm so motivated to pray that. You know, you have family all over the world. So when you pray for your children or your family, you can also extend that to praying for this extended family. Do some practical, think about some practical ways that you can demonstrate that you have a big family. And of course, you can't pray for every single Christian in the world, but there are a few ways that we could help as, as missionaries of the church to help you to pray in very practical ways. So that's just something to, to take home and think about. We pray, or we, we confess in our church, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. That is our confession. That is what we believe. And we believe it with all our hearts. And because we believe it, it is going to drive us to significant, costly action. Let's pray. Our God, you have said, seek my face. O Lord, your face would we seek. O God, we pray that you would meet with us as the promising God, the the one who has promised to our Lord Jesus an inheritance, a people, a bride. O God, we ask that you as our promising God, as we meet with you, we would be driven to see this promise fulfilled. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.